everyone, welcome to this week's episode of the Thrive with Asbury Seminary podcast. I'm your host, Heidi E. Wilcox, bringing you conversations with authors, thought leaders, and people just like you who are looking to connect where your passion meets the world's deep need. Today on the podcast, I had the privilege of talking to Jim Ramsey, Vice President for Global Operations at the Mission Society, or TMS Global. We talk about his calling to ministry and missions, how he got from his hometown in Berea, Kentucky, all the way to Kazakhstan, his role with TMS now, and the ways that we can connect and engage with others to see what God is up to in the world, and to come alongside that as listeners and learners. So let's listen to today's conversation. Jim, how did you experience your call to ministry and missions? It's interesting to think back. I did not have a moment where suddenly, like I saw something written in the clouds or one of these dramatic call stories, which are amazing when I hear them, but mine was not that. It was just, um, it was kind of a convergence, I think, of, of things that, already interested me and then discovery I could do those with my faith. So way back in high school, I got involved in an exchange program that had me uh, visit Denmark a couple times as a high school student. Then I went back and spent a semester abroad in college and, and I got hooked on language and culture. I just, I learned to speak Danish. I learned more about my culture, all the things that we teach now. I had no idea at the time. I just went and learned and loved it. And so I, I knew right away I was hooked on language and culture, was fascinated with it, and then um, was actually the family reunion of all places. Um, we've got missionaries in our family going way back, but I didn't have a lot of familiarity with it. But as I was hearing the stories of my grandmother's sisters sharing about their, their life growing up as missionaries, or some of them had been missionaries, and hearing them talk about culture and talk about language, I began to think, oh my goodness, these two things come together, the faith that was deepening at the time in college, and my love of culture and of language. And so that kind of got me hooked on that trajectory. I was actually a math major, and I loved math. Oh, wow. Nothing, uh-huh. nothing wrong with being a math major. I loved it, went to school, and was in a PhD program in mathematics for about a year, and it worked in a, as a computer programmer, um, but did decide during grad school that math was not a career, and, and so I came back uh, and pursued a degree at seminary, went to Asbury Seminary there. Mm-hmm. And, How did you um, get connected with Asbury? Well, it's interesting. I was uh, I grew up in Berea, Kentucky, and so I was was doing computer programming in Berea. Had gone to college there as a programmer and was back working as a programmer, and uh, but felt like I felt like the next step for me. I wanted to be a missionary. Did not have any interest in being a pastor, but felt like I wanted to go to seminary to get a, a deeper um, education in Bible and theology. Um, and visited several seminaries. I thought I don't want to go to Kentucky. And to be quite honest, <laughs> Berea and Asbury were pretty serious soccer rivals. Uh, back oh. in the late 70s, early 80s, we were kind of the only show in town. And uh-huh. this is more the university, what's now Asbury University and Berea College. So the thought of going to Asbury was a little bit of a um, of a no-no. Mm-hmm. So I had, hadn't really thought seriously about Asbury Seminary. Um, but it was actually talking to someone at um, Trinity Divinity School up in, um, in Deerfield, Illinois, when he found out I was from Kentucky and he found out I had a, a Methodist Wesleyan background. He said, you know, the, the best Western school in the country is right in your backyard. You ought to go there. Uh-huh. And I was like, all right. So I, I looked at a few other seminaries, and the thing that, that I think at that time in my life really attracted me to Asbury was um, another seminary. I won't mention it, but another seminary I was considering said something about we have spiritual life groups for those who want to integrate their academics with their spirituality. And it was that kind of dichotomy, that kind of separation between what's academic and what's spiritual that I did not want to be a part of. Mm-hmm. I experienced that by undergraduate. I wanted to be it's all one or it's nothing. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so the fact that Asbury did not make that artificial separation between what's spiritual, what is academic, um, is what tipped the balance. So I went there and it took me seven years because I was working full time as an IT um, manager down in Danville, Kentucky by this time. Um, so it took me a while. We were I was married by this time. We had four children during our seminary years. Um, wow. But I loved every bit of it. And uh, yeah. all the joking about seminaries being stuff you have to unlearn when you get into ministry, it has not been my experience. Um, what well, I learned at Asbury has, has continues to serve me today now, nearly 30 years since I graduated. 
That's awesome. I'm very glad to hear that. And I love hearing about your calling, how it just kind of was the convergence of things you enjoyed doing, and then you found a way to serve as a missionary with those things. Yeah, it took a while, of course, to get there because seminary, like I said, it took me seven years to finish seminary. I, I said it was a good biblical number. That's how long Jacob had to work for Rachel, so I was I was on good scriptural ground. For that. <laughs> yeah, so how did you get all the way from Berea, Kentucky? Because that's where you're from originally. That's correct, right? yes. Yeah, how did you get all the way from there? Because I know from working with your son <clears throat> that you were missionaries in Kazakhstan. So how did you get all the way from Berea to Kazakhstan? Yeah, it's not a natural progression. <laughs> so, so getting to Asbury, or attending Asbury was the first step. I was working down in Danville full-time, so that's where our home was, and actually where Jonathan was was as a little boy was down in Danville. Um, but I we began looking at mission agencies already, even though I was going to be a while finishing seminary, we already started looking at mission agencies during my time at Asbury. And and I had no idea. My wife was also felt strongly called to mission. My wife, Sean, um, she uh-huh. said she was in elementary school. So we knew we wanted to be admissions. We talked about it on our first date. Best pickup line ever. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, that was on our first date. We talked about missions. So it worked. Uh, so you knew like you were, like, were you talking about missions together or? Yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. So you were serious on the first date. Yeah, really? Yeah, that's another whole story. I'll, that, okay, that's yeah. Really, I don't want to sidetrack it. podcast <laughs> on, on how not to pursue relationships. But uh, <laughs> anyhow, but we, but we knew that we were going to be missionaries, but we had no idea where. Um, Sean had spent some time as a teenager in the Philippines in a teen mission. I had this interest in Europe and in particular had taken a class in seminary on, on Eastern Europe. So that fascinated me. We, we just didn't have any idea. And, uh, but we knew we wanted to be missioned. So finding an agency, that was hard. And that's like the first thing I've learned. And I coach people who are thinking about that is that um, not to be discouraged if you don't know the where. Um, it was hard because I talked to someone saying, I have the passion for the whatever people group in whatever place. And, and I didn't have that, uh, but was wide open. And so we found a lot of agencies really couldn't talk to us without that level of, of uh, definition. But it was meeting uh, Dick McLean, also an Asbury graduate, Dick McLean, who was, was the uh, personnel director at this fledgling mission agency called the Mission Society at the time. Um, I met him up at Asbury and he just listened to me. He listened to my story. He got to know Sean and me. We talked and he bat different ideas by, but he just kind of walked with me probably for, I think we first met probably five to six years before we actually decided to go with the Mission Society, that he walked with me. And to me, that was so valuable. Finding Mm -hmm. someone just to walk with me, um, to walk with us, help us think things through, encourage us, encourage us as young parents. We were having kids getting that figured out too. and, and just having somebody walk with me, that that's what sold me on the organization. And he's the first one who said Kazakhstan. And, really? And my first response was, <laughs> Kazakh what? <laughs> um, remember, the Kazakhstan was not a, a country until 1991. It was, it was a, a province of the Soviet Union. And for people in my generation, the Soviet Union was, was the thing. We didn't mm-hmm. know unless we were specialists. Didn't know all the countries that were within that. It was just Soviet Union and Russia was... The same thing in our minds. Right. And so I had to learn about, we had to learn where Kazakhstan was. And again, this is 1992, 93, pre-Google. Yeah. Um, we had to go to that thing called a library and <laughs> uh, and try to find books. And, and it was hard to even find anything about it. But but we began to learn more about it and, and finally decided that, you know, this is what they think we'd be a fit for. And, and it sounds like the right place. Uh, we prayed about it. We we kind of set set a, a deadline, if you will, said, okay, Lord, by next spring, we'd like you to give us an answer. And and he really did, not through a, again, not through clouds and and a strobe lights, but just through a sense of peace and and assurance that this is this is what he wants. Sight unseen. We'd never been there. Um, didn't know much about it. Wow. So how how did you get there then and what did you do after you got there? Well, so we so we agreed that that was, we'd already agreed to serve with with the Mission Society. Now we call it okay. TMS Global is our name. So we'd already decided to serve with TMS, and so um, we began the process of of uh, developing our support, learning more about Kazakhstan. It was kind of cool because as we learned about it, it really affirmed our decision. Um, okay, uh, cool. 
because I mentioned my wife was interested in Southeast Asia. I was interested in Eastern Europe. We knew that that wasn't a way to carry a good marriage. And so um, we're trying to think, you know, what do we do with this? Well, as we learn more about Kazakhstan, it's almost evenly split between Kazakhs, which are an Asian culture, and Russians, who are a European culture. So the country itself is a mixture. Um, And if you look at a map and take the Philippines and take Eastern Europe almost exactly, almost to the mile halfway between those two, you come to the city that we served in in Kazakhstan. Oh, wow. So that was cool. We discovered that after the fact, but it was that kind of thing affirming. Uh, We took our kids to the Children's Museum in Lexington one time early on in this process. And as we came up the stairs, unbeknownst to us, um, Lexington had a a relationship with Kazakhstan in those early years of training and post-Soviet years. And there was this big banner that said, on the road to Kazakhstan. So we we kept having weird things like that happen (laughs) that made us feel like, okay, this is a place. Yeah. So, so that's kind of what, what got us confirmed. Then then we began the process of, of support development and training, which took about a total of maybe a year and a half or so to kind of wow. go from the decision to go to actually raising our support and, and receiving the training that we needed um, to go. Mm-hmm. Wow, uh, that's awesome. Because I don't, I'm sorry, go ahead. That was 1996, so kind of get a, a timeline okay. there. Yeah. No, like, because I know when I'm trying to figure out, is this really what I'm supposed to do? I mean, God might have made it clear once. I just really appreciate it when he makes it clear multiple times because I start wavering on the way and get uncertain. And so I'm like, oh, that's so kind of him to to reconfirm that on as you were preparing and getting ready to go. It really is, and he is kind. He, You know, he rarely, some people he does. I've seen some people's call stories. It's like, well, good gracious. But in my experience, most people, it is more of this almost um, step-by-step of of step of faith and some assurance, step of faith and assurance, sometimes even adversity. But just, again, and my wife puts it beautifully, just it's a sense of peace throughout it all. It doesn't mean we just, everything was, was, you know, roses and peaches and was awesome. We had our rough times and uh, there were some times even while we were there that I'm like, what on earth are we doing here? Uh, That's also very normal. (laughs) Yeah. So how long, you went in 1996, is that, that's right. How long were you there? We were there for 10 years. So um, just just under 10 years, I think we went in the fall and came back in the summer. But um, yeah. I'm sure you did many different things while you were there. Like Mm -hmm. what are some of the things that stand out to you about your time there? One thing I love about TMS and the training we had is that they they really emphasize the relationships and they emphasize the learning posture um, I'd had this when I was in seminary under under Dr. Whiteman at the time, who was the anthropology professor, just really emphasizing the importance of going as a learner and, and having the tools to learn and observe. So really, that was our primary role on getting there. And I would say that continued to be the posture we kept the whole time we were there. And I would preface anything I do with that, because to me, that sets the context for what we do. And mm-hmm. so often in missions, we think primarily about the doing part of it but the doing really needs to flow out of the being and the relational side of it. And so I, I feel like we were well-trained in that. So we, we focused on learning Russian language initially um, to get to a, a, a decent level of flu- fluency so I could operate in ministry and in life in Russian. Then the-, the Wow, because that's a hard language, right? It's not, you know- It's an awesome language. I, I, <laughs> it's, it's a great language. I love the Russian language. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a doozer. But, yeah. It's so awesome. It's just an amazing language. You can do so much with it because of the way the grammar works. It's just a, it's a wonderful language. Um, yeah, so we, the organization, we had the group that started the field, we got there about two years after they had actually planted the, the, the um, first missionaries there with, with TMS. And they had gone to the community and said, what do you need? Again, this is in the ashes of the Soviet Union. Things were in absolute a state of chaos and collapse. Um, mm-hmm. The first winter we were there, they didn't have enough coal to heat buildings. So they had to call school off in January because it got too cold. And our kids went to a private school, but they had to wear, wear heavy coats and gloves during the day for school because it would actually get, um, it could get us down to freezing inside buildings, inside apartments. In fact, I used to joke, oh my. we put our food in the, refri- in the refrigerator to thaw it out. Oh, my. <laughs> but um, so it was, things were crazy there. So they said what they needed help was when education uh, specifically in, in teaching English, business development, and medicine. So the team we formed there, we began to try to find ways to to connect in all those areas. So my first role when I got there, after a year of really working on language and stuff, we don't let people have real jobs their first year. Job one is 
language and culture. But I moved mm -hmm. in to become the director of a school that had been started actually by somebody else, but that person had to leave. And, and so I inherited the school. It was a school for about 150 local children, um, bilingual in Russian and English, um, using at the time a Christian curriculum. We had to change that several years later because of changes in the law, but using a Christian curriculum. And these were mostly, well, not all the kids were either Russian or Kazakh kids who would be either usually nominal Orthodox or nominal Muslim, uh, mm -hmm. but being trained in a, in a Christian curriculum. And so I end up directing the school. I also became our team leader, overseeing the work. We had a medical work, had a children's outreach, um, a children's feeding program, um, an adult English class that had about three to 400 students at a time. So it was a pretty big operation that we were running. Of course, I had a team of about 16 people that were working with us. Um, but just, just an amazing, amazing time. And then doing a church plant. And then we were working alongside the church plant during all the years we were there. Wow. So what was your role with the church plant then? Because that's awesome. Um, very intentionally played a role of, of attending. Um, okay. I, I attended a cell group. I would meet with the cell leaders. We would often meet just one-on-one -on -one between meetings to talk about stuff. But I very intentionally, the whole 10 years I was there, never led a cell meeting. We really wanted to very intensely try to plant the church in ways that, that encourage local leadership. And in fact, if I had to do it over again, I'd probably do that even more strongly than we did because we did have... Mm -hmm. um, one of our co my colleagues, missionaries, was a pastor for the first several years of the uh, of the church, but really trying to build the church, build the local leadership, build the local church. And happily, I can say that the church um, is still going. Um, Sean and I just went back summer before last or last summer for their 25th anniversary um, since the founding of the church, um, being pastored by a young man I've known since he was 15. And so it's just been neat to see that um, at a time in the 90s that churches were going very rapidly, being planted across the former Soviet Union, but by two, middle 2000s, a lot of them had folded. And I think that just that investment in culture and investment in discipleship and, and mentoring new leaders, we still had our bumps, some pretty serious bumps in the road yeah. as we went. But, but the fact is the church is still going today, which is, is, uh, is just thrilling for me. Yeah. What was it like to raise your kids in Kazakhstan? Because I would imagine, like, if you were having kids in seminary and then you went, like, most of your kids grew up in Kazakhstan. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. They, our youngest was five and our oldest was 10 when we packed up and moved. And then they were, the, young, the youngest was 15. Our eldest had already come back to the States to start college two years before we returned. So yeah. they would all classify their childhood as Kazakhstan. And, yeah. um, which I think is really cool, to be honest. Like, I mean, how many people get to grow up in another country? Yeah, I mean, that's the way we looked at it. I think we had to, again, we had good training on that. So we, we approached it with a positive attitude. Um, there was not this like, oh, poor us, we're sacrificing our children on the altar of ministry. Um, you know, God made it clear that child sacrifice was not something he approved of. <laughs> and so we didn't feel like we were sacrificing our children on the altar of ministry. And he also made it clear that that even martyrdom is something he needs to call you to, and we're not to martyr ourselves um, on our own strength. And so it's 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 just the faith that if God's called to do this, he's going to make it good for your kids. Now, does that mean we didn't give some things up? No, there were some things that we did give up. We, we I'd, I'd see pictures from family vacations um, of the extended family. I have a very close extended family, and, and our kids didn't get to grow up in that with being around cousins, uh, around grandparents. That was hard. They didn't get to do church camps. Um, mm -hmm. Even some of the sports that I love playing as a, as a middle school and high school kid, that wasn't part of my kids' experience. So th there are things you give up. To say you don't give anything up is wrong. But what do you get in return? Mm -hmm. they're, they're bilingual. They are, they're bicultural. They have a perspective on life and worldview that I kind of am jealous of. Um, their Russian accent, I'd kill for their accents. Because <laughs> um, I speak Russian well, but I've got an accent. They speak Russian with with a minimal accent. Uh -huh. um, so yeah, there's um, uh, and then as a family, I think something about American society that kind of often splinters families. Um, when you're serving in mission as a family together, in a lot of mission contexts, not all, but in a lot of contexts, it kind of pulls you together. We we were actually we were there as a family. It wasn't Jim's off doing his mission thing and the rest are doing the family thing. Yeah. Um, and so that integration of life and ministry, I think, is something that often does not happen as much here that, that we were blessed to have that. Yeah. So um, yeah, I don't think I'm just putting a positive spin. We we loved it. And, you know, if any of our kids had turned into axe murderers or 
or or showed real resentment, then I might have to <laughs> I might have to try to temper that some. But we really had a God was gracious. We had a good experience, but we also took it seriously that uh, our job as parents seriously and and tried to be good parents even in that in that context. Yeah, yeah, for sure. How did your time there prepare you for your position now? Because now you're the vice president for global operations at TMS. So how did your time as a missionary help get you ready for what you do now? You know, it's it's the old adage, I guess, that isn't always necessary, but it helps. If, you know, if you're going to be a school principal, it's nice if you've actually taught in the classroom. If you're going to be a college yeah, president, sure. it's good if you've actually instructed in the classroom. That's not always necessary. I think it's possible you can hold positions where you haven't had that, but there's no doubt that that the actual experience, the reality of learning a language, of living cross-culturally, the, the challenges of things taking longer, things not being as efficient as we've kind of gotten used to in, in this culture, um, all the other things that they're just a part of the mix of life there, um, I think gave me a, a level of empathy that I'm very thankful for moving mm-hmm. into that role. Um, when I took the role, we didn't have anybody who was full-time in the role of overseeing our missionaries, which is the role I came into, directing our field ministries. We basically had someone who's in the position I'm in now who had to do that as well as multiple other areas of the operation. Oh, and wow. so I had the luxury of landing in this job and saying, what do I wish I had had in the home office when I was a missionary? Mm-hmm. And try to be that for our missionaries. And what I what I found I needed the most when I was there was someone who understood my context who could help me brainstorm, help me troubleshoot, help me vision. I didn't need someone to supervise me, but I did need someone to kind of be there um, to really support me with knowledge of what I what I was dealing with. And so mm-hmm. I feel like that experience of that need helped me try to fill that need. And now we have someone else in that position as I moved to the vice president role. Um, but I think still, even as a, as a VP, having had those years of experience um, is helpful, even though it's a very different context now, 20 years later with the internet in a way that wasn't when I was there. And of course, every country and every culture is a different context. But still, I think overall, there is a level of okay, street cred, I don't know, yeah. With, yeah. with having done, having raised kids, having been through that, um, I, there is a level of empathy, I think is extremely helpful. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, you're kind of like what Dick McLean was for you in the beginning, like you walk along Side right. right. Yeah. In, in the very beginning, he was more mobilization. There was the recruiting side, which is somebody else. But but he actually moved into the position I took, except he had a lot more responsibility at that uh-huh. time. But yeah, and he was there for me. That's what the TMS has always done. Well, they were always there for him. But sometimes because they had so much they were responsible for, they couldn't know the entire situation in Kazakhstan. And so right. I often did feel like I was a little more on my own for especially leading our team. Now, the, mm-hmm. the flip side I have to be careful of is that Kazakhstan is a context, but I can't translate that to all the other contexts around the world. So I had to learn right. that pretty quickly, and I'd let you talk to people back then on how long it took me to learn that. But <laughs> not to very quickly, someone's talking about Thailand and say, well, in Kazakhstan, you know, they got saying in Thailand it's 95 degrees, in Kazakhstan you're freezing. Um, you right. know, it's a different context. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So tell me about your, your role now as vice president, because I know at least before COVID, you were traveling a lot and mm-hmm. things like that. So what exactly do you do? Yeah, I've had uh, you know people look at my, my job because I do travel a lot to uh, during my former role to visit our missionaries. And now I visit our missionaries as well as visit partners, look at, at possible, um, um, possible new ministries we might do, um, strategic partnerships in different countries. So people look at that. And of course, when I'm posting anything on Facebook or social media, it's going to be the cool things I'm doing when I travel. I don't post myself sitting in a room for a 10 hour meeting. Um, that's right. Because that's what we all post on social media exactly. is the cool things we're doing. And everybody thinks we have the coolest life ever, but we leave out the, the mundane. Right. So I have people say, man, I want your job. And how do you get your job? I'm like, well, the fact is that I, I do get to see some cool things, but but often when I do finally have a break, say, I'm going to go see something exciting. I'm going to go see the Great Wall. It's just me. And so you also don't have the person to share it with. So it's, it's, it's a great job. I do love the travel, but it, it, isn't, it isn't quite the, uh, you know, it's not like going on a, a, a cruise every, every other week or something. Right. But um, having said that, yeah, it did involve a lot of travel. And I, I was determined to kind of not become a, a, an office person in terms of just being surrounded by the four walls of the office and losing that vision of what God's doing around the world and begin to develop theory about what God's doing around the world, but really try to get on the ground with people in their context 
Um, if they're, if they're doing agriculture work, get out of the fields with them. If they're working in a village, get out in the village. If they're teaching class, get in the classroom. Um, I think that's critical to try to keep myself fresh. We've been back for 14 years now. That's a long time. I, I need to, I need to kind of keep myself fresh. And COVID has, has definitely hampered that. I came back from Senegal in the middle of March, right when the, uh, when the whole thing came down and I've not, I've not been on an airplane since, which is a very strange experience for me. Yeah, I remember John talking about that because there was some concern about if you'd be able to come back or yeah. you know, should you come, you know, all of that. So that is true. There was that possibility. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I know too that you did a doctor in ministry at is it Bach Graduate University? Ba- Bach Graduate University. Ray Bach okay. was a urban missiologist back, especially the eighties and nineties. He did a lot of writing. Okay. Um, you got your degree in diaspora missions. Could you tell us a little bit about what that is and how that's helped you um, sure. in your role now? Yes. Um, it, it goes back actually to Kazakhstan again, that, that a lot of the missiology I had read, I mean, the stuff that, that any of us in my generation grew up on missions, the Paul Hebert stuff, the Charles Kraft, um, um, NIDA, and then stuff I was taught at Azrae, which is extremely useful. But a lot of it kind of the context was often a very homogeneous, um, often an animistic or rural setting. And so I go to Kazakhstan to serve and, and the principles were sound. So there's no, no knock in the training I had, but, but I'm in a country that, that had a space center, you know, not far from where we lived and had, you know, put people in space um, and that had a literacy rate of 95%. And so I realized that some of the assumptions that were often built in the mission literature of the 80s and 90s didn't really translate to this kind of a setting. Um, in addition to that, by this time, I'm already starting to see the, the the multicultural nature that the world was becoming. Already starting to observe that in the 90s, Kazakhstan started with Russian and Kazakhs and Koreans and others. A lot of forced migrations by Stalin resulted in Kazakhstan. So I began to see this mix of cultures and also felt like the monocultural setting that a lot of my missions had prepared me for didn't quite fit, didn't give me all the tools I needed. Mm-hmm. So that just set me on a journey in my early years when I came on staff of saying, how can I learn more about where missions is in a more urbanized and a more multicultural world? And yeah. a, a former VP of the uh, International Mission Board, the Baptist, is the one when I was telling him that and thinking about where do I want to go to get a doctorate and, and really work on that stuff, he said, you need to go to Bakke Graduate University. Ray Bakke, as I said, was kind of the guru of urban missions. This university mm-hmm. was founded in, in his family's name and, uh, and its focus was on, on ministry, especially in urban context. So I kind of came in as, as a, a little bit of an oddball coming into an urban ministry focus, but it really, the urban setting was the place where you see this mix of cultures where in one city block, I mean, we teach our people, be incarnational, go in and learn the local language. Well, what if you're going into a city that has 10 local languages spoken in the same city block? Oh what does it mean to be incarnational there? Those are the questions I was wrestling with. And uh-huh. so at Bakke Graduate University, I began to dig into that, taking some of my Azure missiology, which was fantastic, but mixing that in with some of the more urban-focused um, teaching that they, that they had at Bakke was extremely useful. And then the issue of the early 2000s, I, I started this in 2011. By 2014-15, migration just kind of hit me on the, uh, hit me between the eyes through some of my class, classwork as well as some of my traveling and just seeing how how people are going from everywhere to everywhere. We've seen that in the States and already by now the slogan, everybody's in our backyard, the nations are in our backyard, had become mm-hmm. cliche by this time. But really seeing that that was a global phenomenon and, um, and that in missions, I didn't feel like we had caught up with that um, and began to ask the question, is God up to something? So that sent me into the whole area of diaspora mission, which was a fairly new field. I think it had first been coined in the early 2000s but it hadn't really gotten much traction until about probably five years ago or so of, of getting more people. Steve Iberola at Asbury is actually one of the, the real innovators and thinkers in this and has been part of the Lausanne um, discussion group of that for some time. And so actually, even though I was getting my degree at, at Bakke, I requested to do an independent study with Steve on diaspora because diaspora was not as much Bakke thing. They were more urban focused. And okay. then um, uh, Dr. Iberola also served as my dissertation advisor when I focus in on looking at diaspora and mission. Oh yeah, so what does diaspora mean? 
Diaspora, yeah, it's a it's becoming more mainstream, but I should I should remember that it's not so mainstream that everybody hears it now. It basically it's it's the Greek word for scattered. It's the word okay. that is that Paul uses when he writes and and Peter's to the to the believers who are scattered throughout um, throughout the the region. That word is diaspora, and okay. so it means scattering. Um, it traditionally was applied to the Jews. The Jews have always talked about themselves as a diaspora people. The diaspora Jews in the Acts were the Jews who were living outside of the Palestine. Those are the Jews that Paul encountered when he went around. But um, but then it became in Jewish tradition applied to any Jew anywhere in the world as the Jewish diaspora. And that was its primary usage. Then it began to be used some around um, Africans, Africans especially who had been uh, forced migration through slavery, um, mm -hmm. became began to be referred to in the early part, I think, of the 20th century as the African diaspora. So you began to hear it applied to that people was really the next big one. Some other ones, Armenians, I think, also use that language. So it began to be used a little bit for certain people, often who were in a diaspora out of some traumatic event. But mm -hmm. then later, the last about 30 or 40 years, especially in, in, uh, in anthropology and also missions and sociology, you begin to see it applied much more broadly to people who are living outside of their, their countries of origin. And of course, as we all know, it has exploded in the last 20 years. Um, we see it, especially in the United States, but the fact is we're a drop in the bucket of global migration. It is yeah. from everywhere to everywhere, um, especially going into the big cities. Yeah. What are the missiological implications for the massive amounts of people groups who are moving around? I think, you know, missiologically, just theologically, anytime we see something happening, we should pay attention and say, what is God up to? Um, yeah, one of my, yeah, I'll try to keep off the soapbox here, but one of, one of the most distressing things for me is when, when I've seen Christians sometimes have a real resistance about migration and a, and a, a real attitude about, about immigrants in our country. And I'm talking about legal or illegal immigration. That's another whole topic we could talk about, but just mm -hmm. a general attitude toward migration um, that just, I'm thinking, you know, what if, what if God is behind this? What if God is up to something? And when mm -hmm. I began to ask that question, go back to the scriptures, unfortunately, a lot of people have been doing this besides just me. So there's some great literature out there on this. Um, and you read the scripture through the lens of migration. It is like the scales coming off your eyes. Mm, you realize yeah. that God has used the movement of people to move his word from the beginning. Um, the whole Tower of Babel, the problem was that people weren't moving out. Um, and, and Acts, you look at the, 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 the book of Acts, the church exploded when persecution happened and got them out of Jerusalem. And they were working among diaspora. So you can build an entire theology of diaspora, a theology of migration, just by looking back at the scriptures. You think about the uh, form formative experience of, of the exile, of the wandering in the wilderness. I mean, all those are diaspora experiences. So it's yeah. um, the scripture is rich with it. So, so with that, you begin to pay attention and say, okay, what is God up to? And I am convinced that the what we're seeing today is is the wave of how how God's word is going to continue to get to the nations. That it's going to be through the diaspora, it's through the through His people, His church, both the church in the diaspora and the church in the host countries, that are paying attention to what has got up to and saying how is God using this phenomenon to get His word out in a way that is was not possible without that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I'd love it if you could tell us a little bit more about your dissertation project and if there was a particular city that you specifically studied and what you learned. Sure. And I get pretty excited about this stuff. So if I start, you know. No, I find it fascinating. So I'm sure <laughs> our listeners will too. So I feel like I'm kind of jumping around a little bit with my questions, but you say something and that triggers something else. So it's all good. Absolutely. Well, um, well, as I begin to look at diasporas and learning more generally about diaspora missiology, um, the obvious thing people say when they hear about diaspora is, yes, and we've heard that. That's the cliche, that God has brought the world to our backyard. Mm -hmm. There's a little bit of a self-centeredness in that because God is bringing the whole world to everybody's backyard, not just ours. And, right. and that still has the assumption that, therefore, we need to do something for these poor people. And there's some truth to that. I don't want to knock that. But the kind of the low-hanging fruit of the automatic assumption is we need to start ministries to reach out to the migrants, the the foreigner in our communities. And it's beautiful when that happens, especially if it's done with relationships in mind, not just with with uh, this kind of of, uh, of handing out stuff that keeps me in the power seat. Um, mm -hmm. So I love it when that happens, so I'm not knocking that, but I begin to say, where's the real power of the diaspora? And if you look at the Bible, it's usually the people on the move themselves 
that are carriers of the message. It's the Pauls, it's the Stevens, it's it's the ones who are who are on the move, the Barnabases. Um, it's the it's when he talks about in Acts eight that all these people who are scattered begin sharing not just with the Jews but even with some Gentiles. That's where the word of God spreads. And so I begin to think that the real power of the diaspora is, yes, reaching out to those people who come from places that don't have access to the Word of God, reaching out to them and sharing the gospel with them. But what about those who are people who are carriers of the Word of God who are then being moved around the world? Um, what does it take for those people to be agents of, of God's Word, agents of God's mission? So that became my interest. And as a mission agency person, I'm saying, what should we as mission agencies what should we as churches be doing to pour gas on that fire? Mm -hmm. um, I want to be very careful saying, what should we be doing to mobilize them? Because there's some assumptions that saying they need us to mobilize them. Maybe they're already mobilized. <laughs> Maybe God's already doing something. So I felt like my first job was to say, what is God up to? Um, and so my focus was saying, let's take a, an urban area where there's a lot of diaspora and one that's convenient to where I live, which is Atlanta, Georgia. So I decided to look at Atlanta, Georgia, um, in the county I live in, one in four people in our county was not born in the United States. Majority of people who migrate to the United States come from Christian backgrounds. So the, the, the premise that we have a lot of believers among diaspora in our country is, is a sound premise to go on. But what I was wanting to know is what is it that motivates them to get into ministry and mission? And if I can learn what motivates them, those that are in ministry and mission, what motivated them, if I can learn what motivates them, are there appropriate ways that we as majority culture can can encourage that, can come alongside, can pour gas on that? You see, the, I'm trying to keep that posture of alongside. The, uh -huh. the risk that we have in, and sometimes especially in Western Christianity, is we see something, we real quickly want to build the model, build the structures, and then invite people to come in and serve under our structures. Diaspora mm -hmm. puts that on its head. We have to say, what is God doing? What are the diaspora doing? And how can we serve in that? very different mindset. So I wanted my dissertation to be from that perspective. And uh, Dr. Abrola was extremely helpful. He, he introduced me to the whole area of ethnography, which I'd gotten a spattering of in, in my seminary, but he really um, encouraged me to dive deeper in that. And ethnography is, is basically, it's a fancy word for going as learners and listening and trying to understand people, motivations and situations rather than going in with your own agendas. Um, yeah. Um, he may he may fire me for giving that definition, but I think that's a good layperson's definition. Yeah, yeah. And for so, sure. so taking those tools, so I interviewed people who were who I found out about through different connections, who, who were first generation migrants um, to the Atlanta area, who were engaged in some significant ministry that they had just started, um, and it could have been something informal they were doing as an individual. It could have been an entire structure they formed. Um, and I interviewed them just to learn more about their story, what got them into it listening for things and commonalities. Um, I intentionally got people from a lot of different cultures, different countries, different continents, and different experiences. Some came as refugees. A couple came as business people with business opportunities and were, you know, came already established and, and uh, already, you know, entered in at the middle class or upper middle class level. Um, so I wanted to get, get the broad spectrum because we also tend to think of diaspora as, as refugees, and that is also a drop in the bucket of the whole overall diaspora. Important part, but not the only part. And so that was my work. So that's that's a, a lot of background, but it was fascinating. And I'd say the the biggest finding I have, which which made its way to the title of my dissertation, is purpose. The the title is here for a purpose: mobilization among believers in diaspora communities of Metro Atlanta. What I found was, to the person that I interviewed, without fishing for it, just by listening to their stories, somewhere in their talk. A few times, actually, a direct quote, but often it was kind of more implicit, was that idea that God has me here for a purpose. It didn't matter if they came through a refugee situation where they had to flee their country, where it seemed like a roll of the dice, whether the UN would pick them to be a refugee, and then another roll of the dice where they, where they would end up. But somehow through all that, they saw God's hand in what they were doing, and they saw they were here for a purpose. That sense of connecting their diaspora situation to the, the purpose of God, I would say that seems to be the secret sauce. Yeah. You know, what launches diaspora people in ministry. And there were some other things around it of how do you support that, I think were interesting and significant, but that was the that was the foundational thing of, and I began to say, okay, well, one, one role that we can play as majority culture, host churches, mission agencies, seminaries, individuals, 
is sitting down, listening to people's stories, and through God's scripture, through good questions, if they haven't already made that connection, helping connect them to purpose. Um, that seems to be what, what motivates people into ministry. Wow. Yeah. How has that kind of, because you just completed that, but you've been interested in that for a while. How has that influenced the rest of your your ministry? Yeah, I wish I could say it's it's got more concrete stuff developed on that. But like you said, I just finished it a year ago. I've had a couple of meetings with some diaspora groups trying to dig into this more, um, understanding what that could look like. I've, I've done a little bit of work for our, our church culture team at TMS, which, which does mobilization in local churches. And I've done some work with them in how do we talk to local churches about diaspora and really make mm-hmm. churches, local churches, aware of diaspora in the first place. Because sadly, a lot of churches don't know the communities that are around them. I mean... It's, it really is rather shocking that you can go to a church and they don't realize there's a whole Hmong community or a whole um, North Indian community or, you know, in their neighborhood. So so helping church become aware of diasporas and also trying to give language around that idea. Find those some of those believing diasporas and begin to build those relationships and say, mm-hmm. how, can we, how can we come alongside in ministry together, connecting you to the purpose that God has for you? Um, so that we've been doing some work in that in developing some materials for local churches. But my dream is that we'll we'll need to, to drill into this and be able to find find appropriate ways. And I keep using the word appropriate because we don't want to be running the show, but find ways that we can can come alongside. So I think it's gonna be a different lens about mission. It's gonna be a different lens of of who do we look for to be in mission. Um, what are ways in our mobilization team that we can very intentionally look at at, at mobilizing majority world people globally, but even majority world people who find themselves in the United States. Mm-hmm. I did not get into the um, the African-American diaspora, which is a whole th- a thing in itself. And I, it's, it's got enough uniquenesses to it that I, I couldn't, the scope was too big to try to tack, tackle that with this paper. But I think there's also a lot, a lot there of, it's a longer diaspora and it's a forced diaspora with the entire racial history. But as we as an organization have also been digging into the whole area of, of race and mission, I think there's a lot of learnings there also as we begin to look at, at the, um, I call it the first African diaspora and, and how do we connect that into mission. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like, and you've said it many times, the word alongside. And I'm curious, what are some ways that we can come alongside either as individuals or as larger churches or organizations. Um, Cause I think, because I'm not sure how to be alongside. Does that make yeah. sense? No, it does. I think we have to, a lot of it comes to changing our posture. It's very um, countercultural for us um, in general as, as North Americans. I think, I think it's changing some with the generations, but still we're, we're kind of a can do culture. Mm-hmm. And so um, to take the time to listen, Starting with listening becomes job one. That that isn't always natural for us. Mm-mm. But listen to people's stories. Listen to what's happening. Looking for what. That's why I love my good Asbury education. <laughs> what is God doing? That provenient grace, that good old Wesley provenient grace applied to culture. What is God doing in that culture? Expecting, expecting to see God in a culture among a people. Having no illusion that I'm bringing God to that culture of people. But he's already there. So um, I think having that, that listening um, spirit, and in fact, I made the argument in my dissertation that I think basic ethnography is a skill that churches need to learn. Mm-hmm. How do you exegete, use a good seminary word. Um, <laughs> exegete, of course, is the word for when you go to the scriptural text and kind of glean out from the language and the structures what the meaning is. Mm-hmm. Um, so how do you exegete a culture? How do you exegete a city? How do you exegete a neighborhood? Mm-hmm. Um, how and, do you do that? Because I'm curious. Because we just moved into a new neighborhood, so everything's new. How do we, how do we exegete our neighborhood and get to know it, really know it, not just, you know, know our neighbors' names, which is also important, you know. Yeah, it starts with just taking. I think taking prayer walks, walking around, and you know, get to know people. To be honest, our culture makes it hard. Um, we don't have the most automatically. Let's get to know each other culture. Um, yeah. So it's harder here. I always tell people that I knew more people in my apartment block in Kazakhstan in two months than I knew in 10 years in my suburban Atlanta neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Now, some of that's because I was an anomaly in Kazakhstan, and so everybody was curious about what's this weird <laughs> American doing here. 
But still, the point is, it was just natural that you talk to people. That you just did that. Um, we're here. There's just not the opportunity. So it requires a, a high level of intentionality. But going to parks, going to coffee shops, trying to meet people, and even using the newness as the entry point. Saying, you know, I'm new here. I'm trying to learn about this neighborhood. Tell me about that. If you see someone who seems to come from a different background, just introduce yourself to them and say, you know, I came from, I forget where you're from, Heidi, originally. I know you're a UK fan, which is important. Yeah, Eastern Kentucky originally. Yeah, so I figured there had to be some good Kentucky blood there. But um, yeah. yeah, but yeah, but just, you know, I'm from, I'm originally from here and I'm trying to figure out, how, you know, where do you come from originally and how do you, it's, it's important. I think when we say where does someone come from originally, it's in the context that we're also not from here originally rather than, than it, you know, kind of a profiling thing. But, but it is, people often like to tell how they got here. Yeah. Um, and and finding out well what what was hard for you when you came here? What have you found out in the neighborhood? What can I learn? So with that listening posture, people rarely um, don't like that. Um, I remember Whiteman um, taught way back. He said one of the roles that almost everybody in the world loves is the role of teacher. Mm. And so by asking people a question, you put them in that role, and it often disarms people. And then you're getting this valuable information about how something works. And then that's also where you're going to begin to meet people. For ministry, maybe find local churches there, especially lo local churches that might have um, a different origin, like a Vietnamese church or a Hmong church, and meet the pastor and say, "Man, I'd like to learn about your guys' experience. What's it like being a second generation Vietnamese in in uh, you know Lexington, Kentucky?" Yeah. Um, so I just yeah, asking questions, taking that 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 relational learning posture. I think to me is is the key for alongside. Alongside is not having a ministry, then finding some token people to do your ministry and then patting yourself on the back saying we're alongside. Um, you, know, you can get there that way, but it's, it, I think it's not the ideal approach. Right. No, for sure. After listening, and I don't want to minimize listening because I know I need to be a better listener um, in many areas, but after listening, what is the next step? Not to rush into the next step because I think like I said, listening is very important. I think mm -hmm. in our Western culture, we can totally be like, oh right. yeah, I, now I'm going to like, now I have this to-do list and like, I'm going to come in and help. But like, what is the appropriate, the next step after listening? Yeah. And I think you, I'm glad you said that. It's not, it's not a step-by-step -step process where you check the listening box. Now I can quit listening and listening is a posture. Yeah. Hopefully you maintain with you, but yeah. And I'm with you, sister. I listening is not something I was born um, born with, I've had to, I've had to grow in that area and, and still have people to remind me, I still need to grow <laughs> I'll talk to my wife or my kids. <laughs> yeah. But I think that, that with the listening, the great thing with listening is then that's usually where relationships are being formed. And so then as relationships are formed, then because to, to be alongside it, there has to be trust and trust does not exist outside of relationship. If you look at Leon Sony's, you know, five dysfunctions of a team book, trust is at the very base of the pyramid. Um, and, and relationships is what builds trust. So if, if you don't get, get the relationships and you build that trust, it's going to be very hard to, to be doing a lot of alongsiding. And so I think you, you build those relationships. So as you begin to learn, then you begin to take some inventory about, Hey, I might have these things to offer. And then you offer those things. Um, and I, that's, that's where the beauty of this comes in is you begin to say, wow, you're doing this, or you have this going, or you know what? I, I have this or I have this ability or I've heard of this person. Could I introduce you to so-and-so? Sometimes it's just a, a ministry of introductions. Um, mm -hmm. or, but I think a lot of it is listening and then listening with, uh, it's kind of like the teaching evangelism. You listen to somebody's story and you're saying, where does this connect with God's story? And then you're oh, finding yeah. those connections. Um, mm -hmm. It's not going with your, with your track that says how you, have to, how you have to come to Christ, but listen to their story and say, okay, how do I help connect that to God's story? Like that's mm -hmm. the same thing we see here, just organizationally more. Yeah, yeah. And it's sure. hard work and it's messy work. It's it's hard to have a five-year plan on this stuff. Um, yeah. I, drive, I drive our board of directors crazy sometimes with things like this because it is, I would say, it's it's hard to script it. It's hard to have the five-year plans. But having said that, it's no less intentional than a five-year plan. This isn't passive. It's not just see what happens. There, there is an intentionality. You've got to get in the spaces. You've got to have the, get the right ears, have the tools. Uh, get in the right spaces and then and then move move the discussions along. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. if the intentional is just not prescriptive. Yeah, yeah, I hear that. Um, TMS is also a partner of Asbury Seminary, and so tell us about this partnership and what that partnership looks like, and maybe a little bit about what it means for those who are in the Asbury Seminary community. Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, um, 
I think it was, we've always had a friendship with Asbury because we come from similar roots. You know, the, the mm-hmm. Society for United Methodists was our founding name. So we are, we are no longer connected. To the, we were never connected in a formal way, but we had a lot of relational connections to the Methodist Church. We now, there's no formal connection at all or even informal connection, but a lot of our roots and a lot of the people we know are in the, in the United Methodist tradition. Similar situation of Asbury, no official connection, but a lot of relational connections. So for that mm-hmm. reason, a lot of the same people run in those camps. A lot of our board members have served as Asbury board members and vice versa. Um, a lot of our workers were are Asbury graduates. So we already have this connection. Several of us on staff have been trained at Asbury and we, uh, we you know, ridicule those who weren't. Um, <laughs> well, they would say that. In fact, it was funny, in 2014, I wanted to begin to closen our connection with Asbury and make it more formal. So I invited Dr. Tennant um, to speak at our big global gathering. First time ever, we gathered all of our administrators from around the world, all of our staff. We came together in Florida for an event, and I had Dr. Tennant speak at it. Did a wonderful job. But we thought, well, Dr. Tennant's here, and, and um, Julie was here. Let's take a picture of the Tennant's with all the Asbury graduates from mm-hmm. TMS. And I think all of us, including Dr. Tennant, about fell over. It was a big group picture. We're not talking yeah. about five or six people in the tenants. It was probably 25, 30 people at least. Um, wow. A decent percentage of our entire missionary and staff population were graduates of Asbury. And we had an Asbury University to it. it. It got even bigger. Yeah. And I think that that hit me like a brick. And I think it also hit Dr. Tennant and others that, you know, we have a connection. Let's formalize it. Let's, let's, let's do some build more intentionality around that. And so we began a partnership um, that we've been working with since that time um, with Asbury saying, what are some areas that we can collaborate that, that we can find things that Asbury could bring into the relationship itself and things that we can bring in, especially with Dr. Tennant's interest in missions. It, it just made sense that we mm-hmm. could, we could um, create some mission opportunities for students as well as some post-graduation um, possible career and vocation for students. So we, um, one of the early things we did, the yellow house there on campus, I think we're oh, yeah. about to celebrate either four or five years since we opened that, but that was, that was an early um, manifestation of the, we, we had a Jenny Wheaton who now lives in Georgia, but she actually lived in Wilma for a number of years. She'd been mm-hmm. kind of our, to be our person on site to help nurture a new relationship with Asbury, um, Asbury Theological Seminary in particular. We also keep connections with the university. Um, so Jenny began to meet students, meet professors, talk about, we talked about mobilization there. It's something Asbury was providing for us as chances to speak to students about missions and the possibility of serving. But then we, we said, we'd love to have a presence on campus. And Asbury was very gracious. They had bought the house to kind of have for long-term planning for the seminary's um, um, needs for space and everything. But they right now they were just renting it. So they worked out a very nice deal with us to allow us to have use of the house these years. And so the Yellow House is a is a community house for TMS. We have um, the Wimberleys live there now. They're they're not officially employees of us. They're volunteering to kind of cover that for us now. And so they host events and it's, it's a place that people can come. We, we said we want it to be a space to have deep discussions about mission and vocation and calling in a safe environment. Mm-hmm. And so the Yellow House was a, a big part of our partnership and then ongoing meetings we've had, um, um, we, we were actually trying to work out, but COVID kind of torpedoed that, uh, the possibility yeah. of having a professor go to one of our fields and do some ethnography work and some church planning strategy work. We've had a couple of our, our missionaries have now gotten their um, DMINs at Asbury mm-hmm. through, the, uh, through the program there. Um, we've had a couple of Asbury professors serve on our board. Right now we have um, uh, Dr. Kirk Sims, who's a university professor, but as a former TMS missionary, is, uh, is now serving on our board. So we've, we've, we've been deepening these relationships. Um, the other exciting the opportunity that really comes to students, which is your main question, is Greenlight. Uh, Greenlight is a, is a, we call it a spiritual formation in a mission context. It's, a, it's an opportunity for people to go into a mission setting, but really looking at the spiritual formation. What is God speaking to me? How is God moving, moving in my heart? And in this cross-cultural setting, I'm learning about what does missions look like? What are cross-cultural issues as I am in a different cultural setting? Um, but really spending time on the inner work. So much of short-term mission trips is spending time on the outer work. We mm-hmm. want to take advantage of the inner work God is doing in these experiences. So we formed the Greenlight Program, which was started out for undergraduates. Um, but then we created a special pilot for Asbury Seminary students only. We call it um, Greenlight Focus. And we've run a couple of those for Asbury students where they go with a mentor, 
and it's a little bit deeper than the undergraduate program to really talk about deeper issues of theology, of missiology, of, of the global church, and of vocation in this missional context where they're learning from and experiencing people of other cultures um, and missionaries who kind of live and think those things. And I think it's, I didn't organize it so I can brag on it. Um, I think it's one of the coolest things we've developed. And I just, I want to scream to Asray students, you should do this. Asray is allowing us, uh, students can get credit if they do this. Um, yeah. And uh, it's, it's an incredible experience that gets well beyond the mission trip experience, but really, really gives people a chance to go deeper in these cross-cultural contexts. Yeah, for sure. So how do students connect with that? You know, I should have come prepared to give you a quick answer on that. What I'd say right now is go to our website, www.tms-global.org. And uh, if you look at Greenlight, it would be there. Also, Bud Simon is a PhD student at Asbury Seminary. Bud Simon, he's been there for a while, so he kind of is the man about campus now. You might even know him. Um, Bud Simon is, is, is kind of managing our presence on, at Asbury now because he's under TMS's umbrella. So Bud is someone who could tell you more about it and connect you. Um, I expect he has the standard seminary um, email address. Also yeah. the Wimberleys at the Yellow House, um, catch with Rebecca or Guy Wimberly. They also would have information on it. So those are personal connections you can make at a good distance um, with, yeah. uh, with Bud or with the Wimberleys or at our website, you can connect to our mobilization team and they could give you more information about it. I think Jennifer Jones, I don't know if she's still in Wilmore, she's moved to South Dakota yet, but she's also someone who has done this with us, has done the green light and the focus. And I think she also could tell more from her personal experience. She's, uh, I think, a recent graduate of Asbury. Awesome. Well, we will link to all of these resources in our show notes so people can be sure to connect right. if they're interested and just take that first step if they think they have, feel like they maybe have a call to missions or just want to learn more about what, what God may be up to in their lives. Yeah. And I think just, you know, to, to tee onto that, I think given the world we live in today, people need to understand culture. I don't care if you never step foot out of the United States. If you're going to pastor a community in the United States today, you simply need to, I think I would, maybe I'm saying it too strongly, I think it's malpractice to go into pastoral ministry without understanding cross-cultural issues because we are in a multicultural society. Some of the fracturing we're having of our society is because we don't know how to handle um, living alongside people of other cultures and other backgrounds. And and this stuff gives us the tools for that. So I, I'd say everybody should consider a green light or some other cross-cultural kind of experience, even if you have no sense of calling to international outside of the United States missions. So there's my, there's my soapbox for the day. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Well, Jim, this has been a great conversation. Is there anything else as we wrap up the podcast that you'd like to say that we haven't talked about yet? I I think what I just said there is, is, is pretty much it. Just um, going deep into culture. I think a lot of the issues we're dealing with in our country today really do come out of just a lack of understanding how to listen and how to work with people across cultural barriers. Yeah, yeah, agreed. So we have one last question that we ask everybody. Because the show is called the Thrive with Asbury Seminary Podcast, what is one practice that can be spiritual or otherwise, like binging on Netflix or whatever you may be doing, that is helping you thrive in your life right now? Yeah, binging on Netflix, they may, t- they may take my, um, my diploma back from me, so I guess I better not say that. <laughs> Well, we all need some, sometimes we all need a little bit of escapism. I, I do a little bit of that. I have to be honest since I've got a son at Asbury who could, who could tell on me if I don't. But um, <laughs> I think for me, it's interesting. I think some of it's an age thing. I did just turn 60 this year. And uh, um, and I'm finding even at this time of COVID where it's hard to get in person is connecting with, with young leaders. I love mm-hmm. um, getting in the room or getting on Zoom. Um, with someone who is is in their 20s or 30s who's in a ministry or launching ministry or or, or is in mission um, and just talking about ministry, talking about life and just finding ways to encourage them, um, helping them navigate some of the complexities that life is throwing at us now that didn't exist even when I was their age. Um, that, that just, um, I love doing that kind of stuff. And I'd say that that has been one of the things that really helps me thrive now is connecting us with anybody, but especially with younger leaders um, and just finding ways to encourage them in, in the opportunities. I think the world that we have now is giving us incredible opportunities for the gospel. I don't despair. I think we've got unprecedented opportunities for gospel impact now. 
and I see young leaders that are ready to embrace that and anything I can do to, to help them, I'm all in. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I love um, seeing the hope even in these times that, that none of us have lived through before. So. Absolutely. That's probably why, why it's hopeful because we don't know what we're doing. So it forces us to right. lean on the Lord. Yeah. Yeah, even more. So, well, thank you so much, Jim. I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed the conversation and just even getting some ideas, like I said, for like just getting to know our neighborhood and our town a little bit better. So thank you very much. That's fantastic. It was great talking to you, Heidi. Thanks a lot for the opportunity. Hey everyone, thank you so much for joining me for today's conversation with Jim Ramsey. Just so grateful for his time the gift his research is to the world and just appreciate him sharing that with us. I don't know about you, but one of the things that stood out to me was exegeting my neighborhood and just really getting to know the people who live here, not just saying hi, but really getting to know the other people and their stories to build relationships, to see what God is up to in the world. So I hope you enjoy today's conversation as well. If you haven't already, I hope you go ahead and subscribe to our podcast. And of course, you can follow us in all the places on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at at Asbury Seminary. Until next time, have a great day, y'all, and go do something that helps you thrive.